Hello everyone and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labour and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Raymond Lowe, partner at Shun Delamore Co. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we are also fortunate to have the chance to touch base with our local ELA lawyers that practice on the ground in these countries. Our local ELA lawyers are always providing legal support to help their local clients navigate through these challenging times. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. We have an interesting topic today, which is the protection of intellectual property rights at the workplace in Malaysia. Joining me today is my good friend, Indran Shamuganandan, a partner at Shundalamo & Co. Indran is an IP litigator who is qualified in three jurisdictions, England and Wales, Malaysia, and Singapore. He was the lead counsel who successfully argued in the landmark IP case of Merck, Sharp and Dome against COVID, where the Federal Court of Malaysia overturned one of its own previous decisions, a rare feat only achieved six times in the history of Malaysia. Hi, Indran. Welcome to the show. Hope you're doing great today. Good morning, Raymond. And uh, firstly, may I thank you as well as ELA for this very kind invitation and allowing me to perhaps share a few things about IP, not only in Malaysia, but also to give a flavor of some of the issues that are relevant outside Malaysia as well. My pleasure, Indran. Well, it's not often that we have an IP lawyer on this employment podcast. Well, tell us something about your practice, Indran. Raymond, generally, I specialize in IP law. Although I do some work in relation to competition and antitrust, as well as personal data protection and privacy laws, given its correlation with IP. Of course, over the last 25 years of my practice, I've covered a whole host of IP-related areas, both contentious as well as non-contentious, corporate IP, regulatory, and so on and so forth. But perhaps over the last 15 years, the focus of my practice is more in the area of IP disputes, whether infringement actions for trademark, patents, industrial designs, or invalidation and rectification actions. So principally in IP disputes, and sometimes I see an overlap between IP and other areas as well, like a breach of contract, then there's confidential information as well. So in a way, I would consider myself fortunate because I'm involved in a very exciting area of practice, and every day is actually a very nice day for me. And uh, you know, it's almost like a hobby going to work. You know? Well, I'm going to ask you this. Very basic question. What is intellectual property? And explain it in the context of types of IP rights which may arise at the workplace. Okay, Raymond, the very simple definition of intellectual property is basically in form of intangible assets as opposed to a physical asset. And essentially, it's a creation of the mind. And it revolves around artistic works, literary works, inventions, brands, confidential information, trade secrets. There are about six five or six main identifiable areas of IP. I think the most common form is trademarks. ELA, for example, would be a trademark. McDonald's would be a trademark. Coca-Cola is a trademark. So these, these are forms, they're brands. Trademarks are essentially brands. Then you have something called patents, which are inventions, novel, inventive inventions that provide a solution in the area of technology. So those are patent rights. And usually you get a monopoly of 20 years from the date of filing. Then you have industrial designs, which are aesthetic features of shape, configuration, pattern, and environment applied through an industrial process. Copyright, which protects literary works, artistic works, movies, films, broadcasts, performers' rights. And then you have something called confidential information and trade secrets. And I think 
that's pretty self-descriptive. Now, employers in Malaysia may ask, why should they be concerned with their IP rights at the workplace? I think not only employers, but everyone should be concerned about IP rights because in a business, right, very often we will realize that one of the most important and most valuable assets in a business would often be the IP rights. In almost every business, the trademark and the brand would be very, very important. You know? And that's why companies spend a lot of money trying to preserve the goodwill and reputation of their business. So the brand becomes very important. Like if you ask a law firm, for example, what is their most important assets? It will be the name of the law firm, the reputation of the law firm, which ultimately brings in the custom and the client. So in combination of all that, that's a very important asset. You ask a pharmaceutical company, especially now in the COVID environment, what would be their biggest asset? It would be all the patents that they have. You ask a publishing company, uh, it would be the books that they have. And again, these are IP-related rights. So if you ask me the question, all employers should be extremely concerned about IP rights. Now, when you then relate it back to the employment context, why is it important? Firstly, I think a lot of employers may not even understand or appreciate the value of the IP rights. So you need to identify various IP rights. Some IP rights are created on a daily basis. For example, copyright. You write a letter, there are IP rights created in relation to that as well. So employers need to be very mindful of the various IP rights. They need to identify the IP rights. And then there's the issue of protection of the IP rights. Certain IP rights are registrable rights. So you need to know what steps need to be taken to protect it. For example, trademarks are registrable rights. Patents are registrable rights. Industrial designs are registrable rights. And you need to make sure that they are protected. And in the, in the area of patents and industrial designs, there's an additional issue. You, know? you need to maintain the secrecy and to make sure that it's not published before you seek protection. Because the minute you publish it, you may lose what you call one of the registrability requirements, which is the novelty of newness of the patent. So all these things need to be measured. And then for copyright, you need to identify the author of the work. So you need to have proper procedures within your company in terms of identifying who the author is, document it, and then move on to protect it if, in fact, it's valuable enough. Well, you have explained in detail the various IP rights which may arise you know, at the workplace. Now, who owns the IP rights? Is it the employer or the employee? And now I'm going to give you the typical favorite lawyer's answer. It depends. Now, it depends on a few things. Number one, it depends on the nature of the right. And then it depends on the relationship between the employer and employee in the context of that right. Now, trademark rights, for example, naturally, they will vest with the company simply because the company is the source identifier of the trademark. So it's the employer. Usually no dispute on that. If, if you have a dispute on the trademark, definitely no dispute on trademark rights. In the case of copyright, industrial designs, and patents, the general rule is that it's the author in the case of copyright and in the industrial designs as well, and in the inventor in the case of patents. So this inventor would naturally be a natural person and will be the employee. That is the first rule. But this general rule is displaced in certain circumstances. In the case of copyright industrial design, the general rule is displaced if the work is created by an employee in the course of his employment, in which case the copyright on the industrial design vests with the employer unless, and unless, the important here, unless there are provisions in the contract of employment which say otherwise. So I don't think any employer in the contract of employment would say that copyright vests with the employee. So that will happen. And the other exception in the case of copyright would be where you commission a work. So for example, if you go to a photo studio and take a photo, while the author of the photograph would be the photographer, 
because you commissioned it, the copyright will vest with you as the person who paid for the photograph. So that is example for copyright. In the case of inventions, the employer will own it if the invention is created by the employee in the course of the employee's employment. So the operating words is creation in the course of employment. Yes. Yeah. Now, would the employee be remunerated in any shape or form if the invention that is created by the employee acquires a much greater value than anticipated? Very good question, Raymond. This applies in relation to patents. Now, for example, I mean, all employees are paid a salary. I, I would assume from an employment perspective, they're paid remuneration. And there are occasions, especially in the case of patents, I think in the case of copyright and, and industrial design, this does not apply. But in the case of patents, there are circumstances where the invention may get an economic value, which is far greater than what parties anticipated. Now, for example, at the moment, if someone were to come up with the vaccine for COVID, which is the case, I think the value of the invention is, is significantly higher than maybe what was anticipated. Now, in those kind of circumstances, the law in Malaysia actually provides, and in many jurisdictions as well, provides for equitable remuneration to be given to the employee over and above what the normal emoluments that the employee gets in the course of his employment. And this can be done in two ways. One, it can be fixed by the court or it can be fixed by contract. And in the contract, of course, you can't put a figure because otherwise one will ask that is anticipated by the additional benefit that the invention gives. But what you would have is a, maybe a percentage of the value of the invention once the invention comes out. So yes, you do get additional amounts in the event that the invention achieves a value much higher than what the parties anticipated. Sounds fair. Now, I want to turn your attention to copyright. And from the little that I know, we have a concept called moral rights. What are moral rights? Moral rights are actually rights that are associated with the author. Remember I mentioned earlier that in the case of an employer-employee relationship, copyright that is created in the course of employment vests with the employer. Now, there are certain moral rights that will remain with the author, although the, the copyright would vest with someone else. Now, there are two moral rights, and essentially these are uh, recognizable moral rights in almost every jurisdiction. Firstly, is the right to be identified as the author. So if you create a copyrighted work, whether it's a literary work, artistic work, musical work, sound recording, and so on, you have the right to be identified as the author of that work. That's the first right. The second right, which is the right of integrity, you have the right to ensure that the work that you have created is free of distortion, mutilation, or changes that would affect the character of the original work. So these are the two moral rights that are granted under the Copyright Act, and it's the same in most jurisdictions. Now, the issues that are relevant to moral rights is number one, can moral rights be waived? And secondly, can moral rights be assigned? Now, in most countries, moral rights can actually be waived by a contract. So an employer can tell the employee, can you waive these rights? And that is permissible in almost most jurisdictions. Assignment of copyright on the, of moral rights, on the other hand, now that cannot be assigned in almost all the jurisdictions that I'm aware of. Some jurisdictions are silent on it, but it cannot be assigned simply because the moral rights attach to the author. I mean, you certainly cannot assign the right to be called as the person who created the work. I mean, you can't say, although you created a piece of work, you cannot say that 
that is assigned to someone else. So those rights remain with the author, cannot be assigned. But the general rule is that uh, employers can agree with their employees for the moral rights of the employees to be waived. Yes, that will be right. Okay, okay. Now, there is another area that concerns employers, Indran, and that is the protection of confidential information and trade secrets. Now, what qualifies as confidential information you know, and trade secrets? And are these two concepts distinct? I can really speak of common law jurisdictions because in some jurisdictions, certain trade secrets are protected by statutes and I particularly refer to civil law jurisdictions. Now, in common law jurisdictions, confidential information to protect something as confidential information, there are three conditions to be met. Firstly, the information must be confidential in nature. And when I say confidential in nature, it must be information which is not in the public domain. Obviously, the information is in the public domain. It loses its element of confidentiality. The second requirement would be that the information has been imparted in an occasion of confidence. Now, what I mean is there must be a certain relationship between the person who's, uh, who's having the confidential information and the person who's receiving the confidential information. Now, this is usually inferred in certain types of relationships. And an obvious one would be an employer-employee type relationship. And I think all employees owe a duty of good faith and fidelity to the employer. And therefore, anything that is confidential in nature and imparted to the employee would be imparted in an occasion of confidence. And the third requirement is the disclosure of the confidential information is unauthorized and results in damage. So these three requirements are maintained. You would have a cause of action in breach of confidential information. All three elements are necessary to present a piece of a trade secret to be confidential in nature. Okay. Now, what would be your advice to employers? Okay. What must they do to better protect their IP rights and trade secrets at the workplace? Raven, there, there are many measures that can be taken. You know? As I've mentioned earlier, the first element of confidential information is identifying confidential information and trade secrets and the element of confidentiality in it. So to make it certain, maybe you should have a clause within your employment agreement, which clearly states that the information that is imparted to the employee is confidential in nature. And if you could take one step further, if you identify the types of information that the employee gets, that would be useful as well. So there's no dispute as to what the confidential information is. And the first element then would be satisfied. You know, And then the other ways you can do it is, you can implement security measures as well and communicate the same to the employee. You'd have things like password protected confidential information, restricted access, clear marking on certain documents that says that it's confidential in nature. And you can also ensure that your IT in your office is securely monitored and so on and so forth. And then when there's a breach in all those instances, you'll be able to identify and isolate who has had access to the documents and then potentially bring causes of action. You know, in my experience in, in doing cases for breach of confidential information, while the law is very settled, right, the most difficult part is actually to prove that the confidential information has been used in an unauthorized way. And, you know, if you have effective technological measures to monitor this, I think that is a very important step in ensuring that you can actually monitor and protect it as well. Well, some employers have come to me and asked, can they use restraint or trade or anti-compete clause in their employment contracts to protect their IP rights? Is that a viable option, Indran? I think yes. You know, in Malaysia, the problem we have is we have 
something called Section 28 of the Contracts Act, which basically states that agreements in restraint of trade are void. I take the view that the preservation of IP rights are not provisions that are in restraint of trade. You know, I mean, you can continue to do trade as you wish, as long as you don't interrupt or infringe the rights of parties. So I don't, I don't think there's a tension between the two. You can protect your IP rights at the same time. You can avoid restraint of trade. You know, so both can happen at the same time. So I do not think that there is a tension. Although some may argue that yes, potentially that there could be a restraint of trade, and particularly in the area of confidential information, you know, and therefore sometimes there's a very blur line as to what is confidential information and what is what are things that you have learned in the course of your employment, which you could call skills of employment, you know, and in those kind of circumstances, what would be confidential and what would be not confidential would have to be clearly defined. And therefore, I said earlier that having a good clause in your employment contract would often alleviate the doubts that, that may create on those issues. Now, Indran, every litigator would have his most interesting case ever handled by him or her. And I've never asked you before, what is your most interesting but challenging IP case? Raymond, I think you as a litigator will, will also agree that every case is interesting in its own way. But if I were to name one case, it would be the pattern case that ended up in the apex court, a federal court. And I say that it is interesting because it was a case where we had a previous federal court decision, which was at odds with the arguments that I was trying to canvas at the federal court. And that previous federal court case was also only five years old. So we had even sitting members of the federal court at the time who had heard the previous case. You know, So that created an extra challenge to persuade a federal court that one of their previous decisions was not consistent with the provisions of the Patents Act. And to go through that challenge, I think, was very exciting. I had an extremely good team who was working with me on the case, and the support that was given by the team, as well as the client, ultimately led to a successful outcome, which I think all of us can be very proud of. Well, Indran, it has been my pleasure to have you on this show. Very, very fascinating. Thank you for taking your time to share your views with our listeners. Thank you, Raymond, and thanks again to ALA for giving me this opportunity to share some of my experiences as well as the issues in relation to IP law. Thank you very much. If you would like to connect with Indran, please click on his bio in the description of this podcast. Also visit the ELA website at ela.law where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library or assess ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You have been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labour and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Raymond Lowe. Thanks for listening. Stay safe.